The episode you're about to hear will be our last episode of 2021. On the first page of the All In book, I wrote, I truly believe time is valuable. Each second, each breath is a gift from God. And I am so glad you have found this podcast to be worth your investment. So as we close another year, I want to thank you for spending time with us. But even more importantly, thank you for anything you have done in the past year to strengthen your faith. I believe we need faith now more than ever before, and that because Jesus Christ is the only one who saves, our individual faith in Him really can change the world. I hope you have a wonderful Christmas as you reflect on Him and His ability to make everything better. I wanted to prepare a special Christmas episode for you this year. If you're like me, you've dreamt of what it might be like to visit the Holy Land. So my thought was maybe we could have someone who has been there help us imagine what it would have been like that night in Bethlehem. And that is why I originally invited Eric Huntsman on this show. But this episode became something more as I learned about Eric's son, Samuel, who has autism. I would like to thank Samuel, who unbeknownst to him, answered my prayer to make this episode something that would sink deep into people's hearts. It did for me at least, and I hope it does the same for you. Eric D. Huntsman serves as an associate professor of ancient scripture at Brigham Young University and is affiliated with the Classics and Ancient Near Eastern Studies programs there. A graduate of BYU in Classical Greek and Latin, he earned a master's and PhD in ancient history from the University of Pennsylvania. He is the author of multiple books, including Good Tidings of Great Joy. He is also a part of the Tabernacle Choir on Temple Square. This is All In, an LDS Living podcast where we ask the question, what does it really mean to be all in the gospel of Jesus Christ? I'm Morgan Jones, and I am so honored to have Eric Huntsman on the line with me today. Eric, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, I am so excited to have the chance to to kind of dig into the Christmas story. This past week, our podcast episode was all about Mary. And so I'm excited to kind of have the opportunity to talk about some other characters as we talk today. But I want to start out, you wrote this book about Christmas a few years ago. It's Good Tidings of Great Joy. Is that right? Yeah, an Advent celebration of the Savior's birth is the subtitle. It actually came back in 2011, so it's been hard to believe, but it's been 10 years now. Holy cow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and and I thought it was interesting to note that when this book came out, you and your family were preparing to move to Jerusalem. You were a professor at the BYU Jerusalem Center, and you took your family over there. And I I can't tell you how jealous I am of this because my biggest regret in life is not having done the BYU Jerusalem program. Um, and so I wondered if we could start out, I think a lot of people listening likely are like me and they would like to travel there someday, but we kind of have to live vicariously through people like you who have had that experience. So I wondered what was that experience like and how did it change your perspective of the Christmas story? Well, well, it was amazing. And at the time we're recording this, of course, we're still dealing with the COVID pandemic. I'm supposed to be in Jerusalem right now. I was appointed the academic director of the Jerusalem Center starting in August 2020 for a two-year assignment, and we've had semester after semester be canceled or delayed 
because Israel's had its borders shut during the pandemic. But we are hoping to leave in the spring and, and our clock will start ticking then. So I'm taking my wife and, and our son with us for one, maybe two years. So we're going to have a chance to redo that experience. Not that it wasn't great the first time. When I took my family at the end of 2011, it was August 2011 to August 2012, we were there. It wasn't my first time being there. I had been in Israel a handful of times already, but I had never actually lived there for an extended period of time. Of course, it's very different when you're taking your family with you. And the BYU Jerusalem students, of course, are who really make the experience what it is. But it was the writing of this book and its predecessor. About six months before, I had written a book called God So Loved the World, The Final Days of the Savior's Life. That was about the last week of Jesus's life. And in preparing those two books, I really grounded myself in the gospel text and what they said about Jesus's divine conception, miraculous birth on the one hand, but also his salvific suffering, death, and resurrection on the other. So I was really primed, for lack of a better term, to go to the Holy Land, really ready to walk through Jesus's first days and his last days, if you will. Of course, we studied his entire ministry with the BYU Jerusalem Center program, so, so that was wonderful. But I was already expecting to have a special experience in Bethlehem and in the Holy Land at Christmas time, and certainly that spring as we celebrated Palm Sunday, Holy Week, Good Friday, and Easter, ready to really try to connect more closely with Jesus and what he had done for us. So, so that really kind of shaped the whole experience because I had these books and all the research and the writing already done in mind as I went to those sites. And as I said, I had been there before. My family hadn't. But, you know, places I had been several times, like the Basilica of the Nativity in Bethlehem or the Church of the Holy Sepulchre or the Garden Tomb in Jerusalem or the Garden of Gethsemane, I mean, they just meant so much more to me because I'd really immersed myself in the scriptures and, and really tried to understand more about what Jesus had done. So that, that changed my whole approach to it, I guess. Yeah. When you told me over email prior to this recording, you told me that you had a really special experience on Christmas Eve. So I wondered if maybe we set the stage by having you share a little bit about that. And then as we go through these different aspects of your book, I'm thinking it'd be neat. Any any insight you have from that time spent there in the Holy Land would be really special as well. Okay, so I was over there with my wife, Elaine, my daughter, Rachel, who was in 10th grade at the time, and our son, Samuel, who was in third grade. And then my mother, who was recently widowed, and my niece came over to spend the Christmas holidays with us. And I mentioned who the characters are because my son, Samuel, on the one end of the age spectrum, and my mother, Marilyn Huntsman, on the other were the ones who really made this experience so special. I think we'll probably have a chance to come back to this, but my son Samuel has special needs, and he uh, is on the autism spectrum. And really, I had been struggling in the first few months we were in the Holy Land because I had all these great plans for my family and these experiences I wanted to give them. And my wife and my daughter, you know, they were right there with us. My daughter would come on the field trips with the BYU Jerusalem Center students, but my son Samuel... You know, he can't stand crowds and noises, so it didn't work to take him on a bus with the students. And I would take him to these sites, and it was just sensory overload. And I just kind of felt like he was not getting these experiences. 
I was hoping that he would be able to have to kind of connect more closely with Jesus Christ. So, so that's one part of the story is that I had my special needs son with us on Christmas Eve. And then I had my mother who had, as I said, lost my father. He had died of cancer. And my mother was in very poor health herself. She and my dad had always wanted to come to the Holy Land. And it was a dream that they weren't able to do together. So when we were assigned to live there for a year, you know, she put all her nickels together so she could come out and, and spend the holidays with us. And I knew it was the only time that she would ever have this experience. And I knew that she was at the end of a very difficult health struggle herself. So I have a special needs son on, on the one hand and a much beloved mother who was just you know, approaching the end of her life. And so I, I had this prayer in my heart that this would be a special experience that would reach both of them. Now, as chance had it, Christmas Eve that year fell on a Saturday. And in Jerusalem and Israel, in the West Bank, they actually celebrate church on Sunday, like other Christians do. But in Israel proper, Latter-day Saint meetings are held on Sabbath, on Saturday. So we actually had the usual kind of branch Christmas sacrament meeting that morning. In the Jerusalem Center, it was very nice. We sang carols. We had some Christmas talks. But then we, the faculty family and our guests all loaded in these vans that took us to Bethlehem. So we went to downtown Bethlehem, Manger Square, this big square right in front of the Basilica of the Nativity, the traditional spot where Jesus was born. Arrived, you know, late morning, and it was just packed. I mean, this is the biggest, as you can imagine, holiday of the year in Bethlehem, full of people. Lots of local Palestinian Christians, but the local Muslim Palestinians, they celebrate it too. You know, Jesus is actually the second most important prophet in Islam. A lot of people don't know that, but after Muhammad, Isa, as they call Jesus, he's really important to them. And they do believe in the virgin birth with Mary. And, and so they celebrate Christmas to a certain degree. So Major Square was just full of local Palestinians as well, a lot of Christian pilgrims from all over the world, and it was a party. There were parades, and there was a sound stage on Manger Square, monstrous Christmas tree. There were bands playing. It was just almost pandemonium. It was almost too much. And of course, I was worried how my sensory processing disordered son was going to handle this, but you know, he was excited to be where Jesus was when he was born. And we got into the Basilica of the Nativity, the longest continuously used church in the world. It was built by the Byzantine Emperor Justinian and has been in use ever since the 500s. And so we got into the Basilica, and of course it was full. Everyone wanted to get to the, the cave, which is under the church, which is the traditional place where Jesus was born. And so we're thinking, there's no way we're going to be able to wait hours to get through this long line to get down to what they call the Grotto of the Nativity, the cave, which is the traditional spot. And so we're waiting this long line, and I'm trying to decide, do we dare spend hours here? We've got other things we want to do in Bethlehem. It's Christmas Eve day. And just then, there was a Palestinian tour guide who knew me from previous visits, and he saw me, and he says, brother, they all call us brother, brother. You have your family here. I said, yes. He goes, the lines, they're too long. I said, I know. And my mother's here. He says, I take care of you. <laughs> and so he took us to the head of the line and literally stopped all the traffic. My wife called it the Bethlehem Fast Pass. It's kind of like when you go to Disneyland, if you get the Fast Pass. <laughs> and so here are the five of us, I mean, six of us. So the my wife, my son, my daughter, my mother, my aunt, and myself, the six of us go down these narrow steps into this crowded little cave shrine. And my friend, the guide, held everyone at the top of the steps. 
Christmas Eve day, the most busy day of the year in Bethlehem, and my little family of six had the grotto to itself for about seven minutes. I mean, it was amazing. And, you know, so that was neat. Then we came up and we watched the parades, and then we went and had this big meal at this place called the Tent Restaurant. But the most moving time spiritually for us was not all of the modern kind of traditional Christian ways of celebrating Jesus's birth. It was a quieter, more private experience that I and the other faculty families and our guests had on this open hillside just north of Bethlehem. There's this place called Shepherd's Field, and there's a church there that commemorates the angel appearing to the shepherds, you know, while they were abiding in the fields with their flocks. Um, but we didn't go there. Instead, we went to a place on the Israeli side of the of the line, which is an open hillside. And we sat literally on rocks between olive trees with stone walls and a few sheep wandering around, looking at the modern Palestinian town of Bethlehem on the hill. And we sat there as the sun set, and we sang Christmas carols, and we read the Christmas story from Luke. And it was like we were there with the shepherds that first Christmas Eve, whenever that happened, whether it was the spring or the winter, you know, whenever it actually happened, it was like we were there with the shepherds. And of course, there's always going to be a first star every time the sun sets and night falls. But as we are singing Christmas carols, my little son, who was quite shy, you know, he has autism, and we were with a bunch of people, all the faculty families, he interrupted the song. He said, stop, stop. And we said, what? And he pointed towards Bethlehem. He goes, look, the star of Bethlehem. And so, you know, it was just the first star of the evening, but as chance had it, it looked like it was over Bethlehem. And so we all stopped and took a picture of it. It was just, it was just a neat experience. And in fact, it has become a family tradition each Christmas Eve as we celebrate here in Provo, Utah. We almost always watch video clips from that Christmas Eve in Bethlehem in Shepherd's Field. And we always tell the story of Sammy and the first star the Christmas star of Bethlehem that we saw. Uh, so it's something that we can still reflect back on and the feelings we had that night. As we imagine what it would have been like, I have a, an ancestor, McFarland, who actually wrote the, the hymn, Far, Far Away in Judea's Plain. And it's very clear that Brother McFarland had never been to Israel. It's not a plain. <laughs> it is a rocky <laughs> hillside. But, you know, we imagine what it was like for those first shepherds as they received those good tidings of great joy that the Savior of the world had been born and that their salvation and ours was at hand. Thank you so much for sharing that. That was exactly what I was hoping that you would be able to do for us is paint a little bit of a picture of what it would be like to be able to go over there. So thank you so much for sharing that. I want to kind of dig into a couple of the things that you talk about in your book. One of them is that you explore kind of some of the different characters in the the story of Christ's birth. And one that really touched me, well, actually, before we move on to other characters. I want to kind of linger a little bit longer on Mary. And Absolutely. like I said, our our last episode was focused yeah, almost entirely. Yes. Uh-huh. We loved having her on. And and I just there's one thing that you said in the book that really touched me uh, related to Mary. You said, I remember distinctly and warmly the feelings that my wife Elaine expressed the first Christmas Eve after Samuel was born, which is your son. That night she understood Mary's story perhaps more than she ever had before. Our son is also special, as is every boy and girl born on this earth. In our case, our son has special needs, but special gifts as well. And I wondered, 
as we kind of talk about motherhood and Mary, what do you feel like it was that your wife understood that night? Well, of course, Sam is our second born. So, you know, every child is important. And your first born, our daughter, Rachel, you know, that's, that's that moment, you know, after you had in that case, it was almost a day worth of labor. And, you know, they finally handed us this baby and they handed Rachel to me first. And I remember looking at Elaine and she was just exhausted. And as I put Rachel in Elaine's arms, she just had this smile, this look in her eyes. I'm sorry you've got the weeping guest today, but between Christmas and family, you know, all the all the emotional buttons here are being pushed. But, we like you know, emotion. She, it's fine. You know, she just, you know, and I know some of it's actually physiological that when a woman gives birth, there are hormones that are released, etc., that actually do help, you know, occlude the pain, and there is this feeling of release, and there is this feeling of euphoria. But it's not just physiological. It's not just hormones. It really is this joy as you look at this new life. And, you know, it had been this exhausting, difficult labor. And it just, that all just went away. And I just, and I thought I had been excited to hold my daughter in my arms. But I looked at my, my wife, just stare at Rachel's eyes and this look of joy. And, and in that sense, the birth of Jesus wasn't different than any other birth. I mean, the joy of new life is there for each mother, for each parent. But of course, in Mary's case, she had had sacred revelation. She knew that this wasn't just her firstborn child. This was the only begotten Son of God. This was the Savior of the world. You know, so there was just this whole other layer. You know, sometimes I think I'm really big into what we call holy envy, recognizing the good in other faith traditions and being inspired by their devotion and, and their sincerity. And, and sometimes, you know, we look at our Eastern Orthodox or Roman Catholic friends and say, wow, you know, they, they almost worship Mary. They, they pay too much attention to her. You know, rather than be critical, I think we should say, wow, isn't it wonderful that they recognize what an important role Mary played? You know, Mother Eve and Mary, Mother of Jesus. I mean, they are our Father in Heaven, our Heavenly Parents, two most valued daughters. And without those two, it wouldn't have worked. If it weren't for Mother Eve, we wouldn't be here. And if it weren't for Mother Mary, we wouldn't be saved. And I, I think, I often like to tell my students when I'm teaching New Testament, I say Mary is her son's ultimate witness. You know, we are so blessed in the restored tradition, the restored church, to have actual apostles who are special witnesses of Jesus Christ. But there is no more special witness than Mary. I mean, after God himself, there is no one who knew better than Mary that this was God's son. She was there. She conceived him. She had all the witnesses at his birth. And then uh, my specialty in terms of my scholarly research is the Gospel of John. And if you fast forward to John chapter 19, Mary, the mother of Jesus, was standing at the foot of the cross getting this witness that her son had died for the sins of the world. You know, those are the two most important things we can know. Who is Jesus? He is literally the Son of God. He's also the Son of Mary. He had the power to die, to lay down his life as an offering for sin. And that's the other thing. We have a witness of who he is and what he did. He suffered, he died, and he rose again. And Mary is at the front of that. And she bore witness by her mere presence at the birth and at the death of Jesus. It's beautiful. Thank you so much for for being willing to kind of stay on that a little bit longer. But I know that you also have a very soft spot in your heart for Joseph. And I want to talk a little bit about him. I love in the book how you point out that anyone who has adopted or fostered a child can relate to Joseph. But then you say, really, any parent can because children are 
always the children of God and are given to parents on loan. What do you think it is that Joseph teaches us about raising a child in partnership with God? And that I'd love for you to share any thoughts you have about Joseph, because I know that you love him. Yeah, this, this was a little sidebar text box on page 34 of my book called Joseph and Jesus are Children and Us. And, and I point out actually in the Roman Catholic tradition, St. Joseph is the patron saint of foster fathers. And of course, since we know that this was not his biological son, Jesus was not his son, Joseph is the ultimate adoptive or foster parent, if you will. But, but as you mentioned, I said in that little, little essay that all of our children, even if we are their biological parents, they are just to us alone because they are spirit children of heavenly parents. So in that sense, Joseph is a model for all of us. He is a particular model for me as someone who has the blessing in this life of being both a husband and father. And I know many people don't, but I think even those who haven't had that opportunity can project or imagine what it's like for Joseph. He's the ultimate model in that sense. You know, I think it's easy for us as people, not just men. We're talking about men and fathers here because Joseph was a man and he was a husband and a father. But I think it's easy for us sometimes to let our identity or our self-definition be too governed by worldly achievements. Achievements. What is our career? What are our callings? What is our recognition? You know, we let the world or our positions changing as they often are, our status fleeting as it often is, define us. But what really lasts, of course, is our relationship with God, our Father, our Savior, Jesus Christ, and our family and friendships, you know, relationships. And so I look at Joseph, this man about whom we know very little. I mean, Matthew and Mark both allude to the fact that he was a craftsman. King James translates as carpenter. So we know that he was someone who worked with his hands to support his family. But we literally know nothing more about him other than what we read in Matthew 1 in terms of him receiving an angelic annunciation that his fiancée was going to bear the Son of God. We see him receive dreams in Matthew 2 to protect his family from Herod, etc. He's a secondary character in Luke chapters 1 through 2. And then he disappears right outside of these infancy narratives in Matthew and Luke. He's not a character in the rest of the Gospels. The usual assumption is that he died by the time Jesus was 30 or whenever he started his ministry. So we presume Mary was, was a widow at this point. And so it's not his career or his life or his callings that define him. It's his role as Mary's husband and as Jesus's adoptive or foster father and father of whatever other children that they have. We have a little tradition. We have lots of traditions you can only imagine. But one of our Christmas Eve traditions is everyone in the family gets you know, a postcard-sized picture of Mary and Jesus or Joseph and Jesus. Or when Sammy was little, he would get a picture of a shepherd and the baby Jesus. And you know, our gift to Jesus that year, we write privately on the back of the card what our gift to the Savior is going to be in that coming year since we're celebrating you know, his birth, so to speak. I write the same thing every year. I write that I can be more like Joseph that I can seek and receive revelation to care for my wife and my children, to protect them, to guide them. And that if that's all I accomplish in life, and that's all I'm known for, it will be enough. Thank you so much. I, I agree. I remember years ago seeing a movie that was about the nativity and being struck by how Joseph just must have been so good 
And I think that's one of the best qualities or compliments anybody could probably ever give someone is just to say that they are good. And so I, I love Joseph as well. Another person that you talk about is Simeon and you share that it was the story of Simeon that brought you a lot of comfort when your grandfather passed away at Christmas time. Can you tell listeners what you love about Simeon and why that story brought yeah, comfort? Sure. Real quickly, a disclaimer. We're focusing on, I guess, what's really meaningful about the Christmas story. And it's a lot of stories about characters and a lot of personal experiences. And I'm the weeping guest here. I want the audience <laughs> to know that this actually is a fairly scholarly book. I do a lot of what we call biblical exegesis, a lot of history, a lot of language. But the things that are coming to the surface of this time of the year, I guess, are the things that are truly meaningful. So just a sidebar there. This has more than just stories in it. It is well, and, and I it probably that's probably on me because I I tend to dumb things down to my level. So just oh, know, no, no. right? It really down. is. <laughs> I think things float to the surface that are important. And these stories are important because one of the things, you know, Nephi tells us we need to liken all the scriptures to ourselves. And all of these characters can be templates for us on our relationship with the Lord and how we should live. So Simeon is another one. You know, Luke, um, I'll be a little scholarly here for a moment. One of the great things about Luke as a whole, but particularly in the infancy narratives, the first two chapters, is that he gives kind of equal treatment to men and women. It's kind of our gospel feminist, if you will. So he has more female characters than any other gospel. And he puts them in gender pairs, particularly in the opening chapters. So it's Mary and Joseph, right? And then it, well, it actually starts out Zacharias and Elizabeth, Mary and Joseph, and then Simeon and Anna. So we're going to talk about Simeon, but I want you to keep in mind this other figure, Anna, who's described as a prophetess, by the way. So at the towards the end of Luke chapter 2, we have these two prophetic figures, Simeon and Anna who are both what we would call temple workers. They're people who spend all their time in the temple serving through prayers and fastings and worship, and they are waiting the Lord's Christ. And so they both have been prepared through inspiration and prophecy, the testimony of Jesus that, that the Savior is going to be born. So Simeon is this figure, and some of you may remember this, that when Mary and Joseph bring the baby Jesus to the temple as part of her purification, um, he meets them and takes the baby in his arm and gives a prophecy. And in traditional liturgy, if you're Episcopalian or Lutheran or Roman Catholic, um, there are four what we call canonical songs. So you have Zacharias, the blessing of his son, John the Baptist. You have Mary, what's called the Magnificat, my soul doth magnify the Lord. You have the angels, the glory in excelsis, glory in the highest. And the last of these four canonicals is what's called the Nunc Dimittis in Latin, which means now you are sending. Because it starts out, now you are sending away your servant in peace. Simeon had received this revelation or this promise from the Lord that he would not die, even though he's an old man, he would not die until he had seen the Savior. And now that he's holding Jesus in his arms, he says, I can go in peace. It's a beautiful story. Um, and actually, in, in a lot of traditional Christian practices, people will pray or read or listen to a musical setting of the Nunc Dimittis at evening prayer, because the idea is, I don't know if you remember the old prayer we used to say when we were little, now I lay me down to sleep. If I die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. The idea is we never know when the last, our day is going to be, our, this day is going to be our last day. So at the end of the day, you want to be right with the Lord. Well, this is used in a lot of traditional Christian churches because we should all be in the place of Simeon. At the end of the, each day and at the end of our life, we should say, I have seen the Lord or I know Jesus. Okay, so that's just kind of the background of it. 
I was putting this book together, writing it at the end of 2010. It was going to come out in 2011. And my grandfather, my paternal grandfather, Grandpa Huntsman, died just a few days before Christmas. So I, I was still in the... It would take me another couple months before this book was finished, but it was in process at the time. Well, Christmas funerals are always hard when someone dies at Christmas time, right? It's supposed to be the happiest time in the world, but now you're the saddest, etc. So we all we held the funeral off till the 27th, and my family's from southern Utah. My grandfather's from a ranch in New Harmony, which is south of Cedar. So we drove down to Cedar City on the 26th and stayed in a hotel, a little Hampton Inn, so that we'd be ready for the funeral on the 27th, the next morning. And um, I'm my only, the only, well, I guess there's some more now, but I, I was the eldest of my grandfather's namesake grandsons, if you will, who bore the Huntsman name. And so for whatever reason, they asked me to give the funeral talk. And it's one of those things, you know, you try and try to put a talk together. It just doesn't come together. It's usually you're getting a stupid thought because you're not thinking the right things. So here it is the night before the funeral, and I still haven't written my funeral sermon. Well, we have lots of traditions in my family, as I've already alluded to. We get together every night in December leading up to Christmas for a Christmas devotional with a story and a scripture and a carol. And um, we continue it for the few days after Christmas. I hate it when Christmas is over. And traditionally, Christmas is a season. The 12 days of Christmas are not the 12 days leading up to Christmas. It's Christmas Day through January 5th. So we keep this tradition going after Christmas. And one of the first stories that we read after Christmas is the story of what's called the presentation of the temple, the story of Simeon. So I'm reading this account in Luke 2 to my kids. And suddenly I realize Grandpa is Simeon. Grandpa was this older man, he was a temple worker, he'd been a bishop, he was faithful. And I thought, just like Simeon served in the temple, and I thought, maybe Grandpa never actually saw Jesus, maybe he never actually had that kind of vision, but I know he knew the Lord. And when the moment came for him to actually die, you know, the 23rd or whatever it was, 22nd, 23rd, I have this confidence that it was sweet for him. You know, section 42 promises us that, you know, death will be sweet to those who know the Lord and that he was able to say like Simeon, now my, now I can go in peace because I have seen the Lord's Christ. And so I actually used that story as the basis of my talk the next day way of honoring grandpa, remembering Simeon, but also kind of holding up the bar, the standard to the rest of us, that we should be like that. We should really be seeking to know the Savior so that when our time comes, we can go in peace. I think that's profound. I just heard this week about a, a woman that I know from my hometown who was a really strong Christian and she passed away suddenly and unexpectedly. And my heart has just been aching for her daughters. Um, and just thinking about the comfort that can be found in knowing that somebody has lived a Christ-like life and, and to have that hope at Christmas time in particular, I think is really, really beautiful. Well, another that um, in the book at another point when I talk about the slaughter of the innocents, you know, when the babies of Bethlehem are, are killed, I have a, a little sidebar there called Sadness at Christmas Time. And, you know, there's a, a haunting carol called Lulay, My Little Child. It's the Covenger Carol. And it's about the mothers of Bethlehem, you know, weeping for their babies, which sounds kind of dark and macabre at Christmas time. <laughs> but the reality is uh, Christmas can be hard for a lot of people. If you're alone, if you've lost someone, if life's difficult, when it's so joyful for everyone around you, 
it makes your sadness or your disappointment, your heartache seem almost all the worse by contrast, right? So sometimes it's really nice to find some comfort in saying, yeah, things have been hard historically for lots of people. Uh, And, you know, it was really sad when Grandpa died that year. But as time has passed, we now look back at that experience and we can take comfort because of the comparison with Simeon. Um, I do think it's really important while we are happy and as we're celebrating that we be very aware of those who are alone or those who are sad or those who've lost someone who are suffering um, and not kind of run over them in our joy, if that makes any sense. For sure. For sure. Okay. So we talked about some of these characters and I, I love that. I will put in a plug for your book because I loved everything that you have in there about Zacharias and, and Elizabeth. But I want to kind of transition to you talk about some of the aspects of Christmas and their origins within religious history. You write about the role of gifts in our celebration of Christmas and how the ultimate gift is the gift of the Son of God. I love all of the traditions that you and your family have. And in particular, I love the ones, it seems like your family is really focused on keeping Christ at the center of Christmas. And so I wondered if you could share with listeners a thing or two that you and your family have done that, that emphasizes the celebration of Christ at this time of year. I mentioned earlier, as we were talking about the Simeon and, and the Grandpa Huntsman story, that our, our family makes a point of every day in December, taking some time, usually in the evening, to sit down, even if it's just for 10 or 15 minutes as a family. You know, we're going to do our scripture study and our family prayer anyway. So it, it seems like the normal place to say, hey, let's do a little Christmas So we have a little book that we've put together that has a Christmas story. Some are fun, some are thoughtful, some are heart-rending. And then we have a scripture and a carol for each day from December 1st to December 24th. Uh, I pick scriptural passages and put them kind of chronologically, starting with Adam going all the way up, you know, through that famous passage in 3 Nephi 1, when the Spirit of Christ talks to Nephi the night before he's born. And so we read the Christmas story and we read the scripture together, and we sing the carol, and then we have our family prayer. But what it guarantees is that each day we are thinking about what this season is about. And all the scriptures come from the Old Testament or the Pro Great Price or, or the Book of Mormon leading up to Jesus' coming. So it's just really keeping us focused. We also picked up a few years after we put this Christmas book together, this tradition in Western Europe, it's Lutheran, Methodist, Catholic, Advent the four Sundays before Christmas. So this is usually the first Sunday after Thanksgiving, even before we start our Christmas devotionals in December. You know, we have an Advent wreath with the four candles, and it's a a more involved devotional. You know, we light the candle of the week, and we have a number of scriptures we read, and we talk about that week's theme, and then we sing and we pray, and then we usually make cookies or do something to make it fun for the kids. That's another thing. So those are our very kind of formalized things, but we have other things that are small. You know, I my neighbors call our house Little Temple Square. I put up more lights than you can imagine, and we have fire music blaring out the speakers, you know, Christmas songs, and I just love decorating for Christmas and making it a happy time. We have a tradition, a small one Christmas morning, that we started one year when we had some family visiting and things were tense, and, you know, I had all these nice, warm, quiet traditions with my little family. It was just Elaine, Rachel and I at the time. And and I felt like the holiday had been kind of disrupted and there had been some, not contention, but just, it was just 
chaotic and I, I just felt like before we can open our gifts Christmas morning, I want to have prayer. And Lynn's like, we're going to pray? You know, <laughs> my parent family's here, what's going on? And so we just knelt together. And before we even opened any gifts, we just offered this simple prayer, which has become a tradition. You know, we thank Heavenly Father for the gift of His Son, Jesus, and we're grateful for the bounty which allows us to give and give such gifts each year. And now... Uh, when the kids were little and we'd go down to the family room for, you know, the mythologically delivered gifts, right? The Santa Claus gifts. Even before we'd go down there, we'd gather around the Advent wreath and have that prayer before we went down and, you know, tore apart those packages or before we came back up to the living room to open the gifts from each other, you know, the family gifts around the tree. Just so we just wouldn't, we wouldn't just start with gifts, right? We would start by lighting our candles and having a prayer and offering thanks for Jesus and recognizing that, yeah, Christmas is a lot of fun and, and we do get gifts and we do get joined giving gifts but that's just because we're following the pattern of the magi and others who were trying to give gifts to the baby jesus but most of all god's the love the world that he gave his only begotten son that i i think those are such great ideas i especially love that last one one thing that people may or may not know about you, Eric, is that you have sung for years in the Tabernacle Choir on Temple Square, and I always recognize you there in the choir. And <laughs> so I wondered, what what is it about music that speaks to our souls, and why is Christmas music so special to so many? So when I started out with the Tabernacle Choir in 2003, it was actually the year Sammy was born. So that's how I remember how long I've been in the choir. I just remember how old Sam is. So it's been 18 years now. Um, Craig Jessup was our music director. And I actually was doing a show for what was then called the Mormon Channel. And, and so I interviewed him and our organist, Rick Elliott, about Christmas and, and, and music and how it speaks to us. And Craig had this wonderful expression. He said, music is the first language. It's the, it's the language of the heart. And I have since kind of paraphrased that. I wrote a book on worship a few years ago for Desert Book. And in the chapter on music as worship, I, I paraphrase the hymn, you know, prayer is the soul's sincere desire. Well, if prayer is the soul's sincere desire, then perhaps music is its most earnest expression. It's a way for us to express not just what we're thinking, but what we're feeling, right? And even if you're not a singer, um, you can be moved by music and you can appreciate music. My mother, whom I mentioned earlier when I was talking about Bethlehem, or Christmas in Bethlehem, Christmas Eve in Bethlehem, was a great musician, as my grandfather on her side was. And my sister and I always say, one of the greatest gifts that our mother gave us, besides what she taught us, not only about who Jesus was, but how to serve him. The other great gift she gave us was music. You know, we played the piano, and we learned violin, and we sang in all of her choirs. And, you know, it doesn't matter where we live, New York, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, our ward, no matter how small it was, had some of the best Christmas and Easter programs. And so we very early learned that music was a way of worshiping and particularly honoring and commemorating the birth, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, I have a, my daughter laughs at this. I have an iTunes playlist, Christmas playlist that's 3.2 days long. You know, how it shows how long. <laughs> Every song you can imagine. And my wife used to have a firm rule, no Christmas music till things, you know, after Thanksgiving dishes are done. My daughter and I used to always sneak it early. But, you know, once we've gotten permission from mom, music is playing constantly in our house. 
And, you know, I have a playlist that's tailored for Sunday, which is a little bit more reverent, but we have that 3.2 day playlist has every Tabernacle Choir song ever recorded for Christmas, but it also has all the fun ones and all the carols and King's College and Pentatonics, you know, and, and noteworthy. I mean, it's got every kind of music you can imagine because just having the music in our home just brings Christmas, right? And um, there's an appendix in the book which is called Christmas with Autism, that we may or may not have time to talk about it. But, you know, we had all these traditions and a lot of them involved music. And when Sam was, even before he was diagnosed at four, uh, things weren't working out with our traditions. We didn't know what his issues were. We knew he was developmentally delayed and we knew that he had sensory issues because lights and music and loud noises and flashing lights were just a trouble for him. But Christmas drives him crazy. And it's hard for a lot of people on the autism spectrum because you know, strange smells, strange lights, and then their kids, why is there a tree in the living room? And why are things different? A lot of people on the spectrum like the uniformity of normal patterns and everything's kind of turned upside down at Christmas. And one of the things that was hard for Sam because he had sensory processing disorder was loud noises, which included loud music. And when we would have our daily Christmas devotionals and I would sing, I sing my heart out. When I'm in the choir loft, I blend, you know, <laughs> Dr. Wilberg and Dr. Murphy, they insist that we blend. So you don't stick out when you're singing in a choir. But you know what? When I'm singing in sacrament meeting or temple preparation meeting before my shift each week, or when I'm singing with my family, I let it rip. You know, I just <laughs> I figured this is how I worship, and I'm going to sing. In fact, real quick story. When I was first a new bishop as a young man, I had this sweet old lady came up to me once. She goes, Bishop, you sing too loudly. And so for two or three weeks, I hardly peeped. I just sang so quietly. <laughs> and Elaine finally pulled me aside. She goes, Eric, you look so miserable. Who cares what people think? Didn't she quote that great passage, the song of the righteous is a prayer unto me? She goes, Eric, that's how you worship. And I know you have to blend into choir, but when you're singing hymns, you just, you sing. So I would sing, you know, and Sam, little three-year-old, would cover his ears and scream when his daddy sang. <laughs> and this was my way of worshiping. And I thought, oh my gosh, Christmas is ruined. You know, how will it ever be the same if we can't do all of our traditions and we can't have the music, etc.? And it was actually my little daughter who began the journey of kind of recovering Christmas for us. I often say that um, Rachel was Sam's first and best therapist. She just loved her brother. I really believe she was sent first to our family because she was prepared to take care of him. And, you know, when he got in kindergarten, he had an aide who said, Sam always needs to know what is next. And so she worked with his kindergarten teacher to always make a list on the board. This is what's next. And later, aides would have a clipboard. They would actually lay out what was happening that day and what the assignments were. And we put a big whiteboard on our wall with each day and each part of the day, and little, you know, magnetized stickers, you know, what's going on when, so that he could plan and prepare for it. So Rachel said, Sam needs a Christmas checklist. And so she made this Christmas checklist of everything we did on Christmas Eve day and Christmas Eve and Christmas morning. And she decorated it with pictures, you know, so there's Santa Claus and there were gifts and there was food and all these different things. And, you know, he would never be in the nativity play. Well, one of those things was write a nativity play, act in the nativity play. And so she very patiently helped this little five-year-old autistic boy write a play in his words of the story and practice his part with them. And, you know, it's become such a tradition, even though Sam is very functional now. You know, I ordained him a deacon, a priest. He's now taking classes online at UVU. I mean, 
We've seen such miracles with him. But even as an 18-year-old, fairly functional boy, one of our Christmas traditions is the Christmas checklist. (laughs) And, you know, he still decorates it with pictures. And it's not Christmas unless he can check each of those things off. So it's like family prayer to thank for Jesus Christmas morning. Check. Go downstairs in the presence from Santa. Check. Go upstairs and give gifts to each other. Check. Make Christmas dinner. I mean, he doesn't need it anymore. But it was just the way Rachel helped him negotiate the differences. And what? And now when we say we do our Christmas devotionals, and it's my daughter's married now, so usually it's just me, Elaine, and Sam. The three of us sit together. And even though he's 18 years old and pretty big and doesn't usually want dad to hug him. When we do these Christmas devotionals, we'll read the story. He will put his head on my shoulder, lean up against me. It's the closest we are now that he's big, right? And he sings his heart out. He can give his baritone in Tabernacle Choir dad a run for his money when it comes to singing <laughs> Christmas carols with his heart. Well, I... Cannot thank you enough for sharing all of this. I keep thinking how I feel like Heavenly Father um, sometimes leads me to certain people for this podcast. And and this is one where I feel like it turned out exactly like it was supposed to, that there's some reason somebody out there that needs to hear this or a lot of people that... Um, that Christmas might look a little bit different, but that we can still celebrate the Savior and do it in a way that's special. And so thank you so much for sharing oh, all of these. Thanks for having things. me. You know, the only thing I love to talk about more than Christmas is Easter. So if you want another <laughs> thing, let me know. You know, okay. Craig gave his Christmas message and I think it was 2000. He said, if, if it were not, you know, the baby Bethlehem would have been just another baby if it were not the redeemed, the redeeming Christ of Calvary and the empty tomb. So, um, and if people can't get a copy of the book, it's may, I don't know if it's out of print yet. There may not be a lot of copies. Um, Google Eric Huntsman and Latter-day Saint seasonal materials. And I put a lot of these ideas on a blog that they can refer to. And maybe if they, if they want some of those ideas, but if not, just pull out the scriptures and let the spirit be your guide. And, and, and it will help you know how you can best honor the savior. You know, we just had a, a devotional here at BYU Theodore Anderson, where he said the best gift we can give the savior right now is to spend time with him at Christmas and all the time. And it's really worth taking time out of our busy schedules to each day reflect on who Jesus is and what he did for us. Absolutely. I loved that talk by Elder Anderson. So I'm glad that you brought that up. Um, Last question for you, Eric, is what does it mean to you to be all in the gospel? Well, you probably already gotten a hint of this. That's kind of my personality. Whatever I do, I do all the way. (laughs) You know, I love the original meaning of the word gospel. In Greek, it means good tidings. That's what the title of that book, Good Tidings of Great Joy. Uh, It's our word evangelical, but it's when you're sharing the good news of who Jesus is and what he did for us. And when that becomes the defining factor of your life, that you're not just the son and daughter of God because you're spirit children of heavenly parents, although that's a precious gift. We become begotten children of our Father in heaven. We become children of Christ, as King Benjamin puts it in Mosiah 5. When we enter in a covenant, take upon ourselves the name of Christ, and he becomes the center of our life. And he becomes the motivator. And there's that great line in 1 John 5, we love him because he loved us first. When we recognize how much Jesus loved us, that he was willing to die for us and then rise again, you know, 
we should live for him. Yeah, it'd be great to die for your testimony if that's what you're called upon to do. But what most of us are called to do is to live for him. And to me, being all in is to see the majesty of the restoration and the fullness of the gospel through the lens of its first principle. Because there are always challenges. You know, we can always have faith issues or questions. But when you are firmly anchored in Jesus, those other things, they'll, they'll fall in place in time. So, 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 so well said. Thank you so much, Eric. I appreciate it. And I hope that you and your family have a very Merry Christmas. Oh, Merry Christmas to you, Morgan, and to all of your listeners. We are so grateful to Eric Huntsman for joining us on today's episode. You can find many of Eric's books, including Good Tidings of Great Joy, on DeseretBook.com. Thank you so much for listening. We will be taking a three-week break, but we'll be back with new episodes beginning January 12th. Merry Christmas to you and your family, and a very happy new year.